I acknowledge with gratitude that I am a settler who lives and creates on the unceded traditional territories of the Semiamu First Nation, which lies within the shared territories of the Kwantlen, Katsi, Sawasan, and Stolo First Nation. Today, I'm very lucky to have Megan Rogers here with me. Megan is a brilliant, accomplished young woman that I met in the fall. Uh, She started listening to the podcast. I'll let her talk about that. I was blown away by Megan's take on some things. And as someone who was more than double her age, wanted to talk to her about things that were similar in our experiences and different in our experiences. One of the things that Megan and I have in common is that we believe passionately in helping to destigmatize and normalize our experiences that we know many others share. Welcome to the ADHD Friendly Lifestyle, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Moira Maben, a woman, mom, educator, and I have late diagnosed ADHD. This is the place to practice getting rid of guilt or shame and spending more time with our strengths and passions. There are things that I wish I had known about my ADHD sooner that are allowing me to make different decisions to make my life more ADHD friendly, and I want to share them with you. For show notes, including next steps, resources, and articles on this topic, visit ADHDFriendlyLifestyle.com. ADHD Rewired's 28th season of online coaching and accountability groups will be starting in mid-April and running to the end of June. Don't wait to discover what our coaching groups are all about and get your questions answered. Learn more by going to ADHDFriendlyLifestyle.com slash coaching. Then click on the green link to sign up for our spring interest list. You will receive an email with your next steps. You know how hard getting up can be? It's the amazing groups of people who keep me showing up at 6 a.m. three times a week to build skills, to plan and organize their lives, but more importantly, to prioritize themselves and their dreams. They show up, are open, vulnerable, and find their community. A community where we let go of guilt and shame around ADHD and find more joy in life. I had the privilege of listening to Megan Rogers on another podcast, Heavier Than I Look, hosted by Kira Russo. And the fact that she's closer to my daughter's age also was really of interest to me as I'm learning how to navigate letting her spread her wings. One of the things that Megan and I have in common, besides both being very driven and we were muscling our way through undiagnosed ADHD, is that we believe passionately in our recovery and being advocates for ourselves and helping to destigmatize and normalize our experiences that we know many others share. So welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I think I can just start off by saying that I I wouldn't be where I am without your podcast, and I I wouldn't have been able to have those words um, without that. So thank you for the work that you're doing. It's my pleasure. One of the things that I really liked hear you speaking about is the idea that we're always looking for that optimal state and the things that we'll do to help ourselves get into it. You know, the whole idea that our brains are looking for this chemical level, like you talked about, like watching a movie and like I need to be doing something else while I'm watching a movie unless I'm exhausted. If I'm exhausted, I can just lay there. But otherwise, I need to be doing something else. Otherwise, it's like a poking at me. Yeah. ADHD 
is a dopamine dysregulation disorder. You think dysregulation and you think of, you know, a deficit, but really Mm -hmm. the effects swing both ways. And for so many women, that is how we get missed is this net positive, at Mm -hmm. least externally life that we're living where we're still able to achieve all these things and take care of others and somehow manage to get it all done. When I feel it the most is when I have to perform neurotypical and it's in settings like going to in-person office hours where I'm sitting across the desk Mm -hmm. from a professor and I'm using all of my emotional energy to appear as normal as possible. And I'm sitting still, I'm making eye contact. And at the end, I feel like the blood pressure cuff is around my entire body. That's the physical sensation for me. And as a child, I didn't realize that a day of sitting with the blood pressure cuff around you is going to require chemical reset. And so as a kid, I would come home and just eat and eat and eat. Always hungry, always trying to fix that extreme discomfort of just getting through the day. I have a question for you. When you were young and going to school, did you, how did you get to school? I would ride the bus. Because that chemical reset, I think how I got to school helped with that. You went on a bus? So yeah, I I rode the bus. One of the best years of my life was freshman year of college. Mm -hmm. And I had a mile commute on foot. Mm -hmm. And it was so helpful. Yeah, walking home from the bus stop as I got older and into high school could have been Mm -hmm. good, but I was wearing such uncomfortable clothing (laughs) and carrying all my books and my volleyball bag that I just hated it. Yeah, because I actually had a walk through nature to get to school and home every day in elementary school Mm. and grew up in the era that um, kindergarten, my mom took me to school because uh, I was the only sibling going to that school. But from grade one on, it was like out the door on my own or with my siblings or friends. And that half an hour each way, right, I think really helped with that reset and just having that time outdoors. And then as I got older and that wasn't happening naturally, Mm-hmm. that's when I figured out that helped me that way, which that's why I was, I was curious about that. Yeah. I have an experience similar. So I, I didn't have a mm-hmm. huge bus stop commute, but I played outside mm-hmm. every single day as a kid. And I thank goodness my processing speed is just total shit because I was never good at video games. And so I would just play outside and climb trees and I had my little tree fort and I can't, I'm like, thank goodness. That's just how it happened to work out. And then when I got older, I would go straight from being in school. The blood pressure jacket was okay. Cause I'd go straight to volleyball, high intensity. Yeah, same thing. I was yep. a basketball player. I never got video games because at that, and originally it was the arcades. And I'm like, why would you put 25 cents into a machine and really effectively get nothing out of it? Because yeah. Had I had treatment, I would have had the attention span to Mm -hmm. figure out, but like the whole figuring out the game and paying attention to the game, you know, so that, so there was no reward. So even like now we, when we have them in our home, I just, I, I just have zero interest in that. I love how you described why attention deficit hyperactive disorder is such a bad name. Mm -hmm. Could you share that for us? 
So ADHD, and I, I have talked to so many people, and they see the image of the five-year-old little boy running around in the classroom being disruptive. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is like naming mm-hmm. OCD obsessive hand-washing disorder. So it's like saying, oh, if you're not, you know, washing your hands every 20 seconds, then you don't have OCD. I mean, I think ADHD should be renamed to be something along the lines of a dopamine dysregulation disorder because it shows up in an infinite number of ways. Yeah. With the attention piece, it's not a deficit of attention. It's a difficulty directing your attention Mm -hmm. or shifting your attention, right? It's not a deficit in it because in the context that it was studied and named, you know, it's been around hundreds of years, but this modern name of it was because of the observable symptoms that they could see in boys that were annoying. Yeah. And girls will work very, very hard to hide that. Yeah. As will people who don't have the physical hyperactivity presentation. Yeah. I thought that was really helpful when you described it that way, because it's a symptom that doesn't show up in everyone. And the whole emotional dysregulation part of it, that is such a key component. It's in the criteria in other countries, but it's not here because of how difficult it is to to research it. Yeah. One of the things that you have mentioned in our conversation is the idea of being sensitive as like a part of how we're, we're made. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it goes through to our emotions and our digestion and, and all of those things are just mm-hmm. more sensitive than it is for other people. And just that it's really a huge, it's a, it's a huge piece of it that we, yeah how pervasive it is in our lives and in our beings. Yeah. Being highly sensitive. I can share. I think it's, it's really difficult in so many ways to be living what's supposed to be a parallel life alongside neurotypical peers. I'm so grateful that at a really young age, my elementary school teachers gave me the freedom to do what was interesting to me. And I have very clear memories of Mm -hmm. sitting at my desk during silent reading time and being like so bored. It was a Scooby-Doo book and just having zero interest in it. And I wanted to write. And my second grade Mm -hmm. teacher and my first grade teacher And most of my other teachers gave me permission to do something that was equally, you know, non-disrupt, but interesting to me. You know, we were talking earlier Mm -hmm. about a conversation that I had earlier today with someone where, why does just being yourself have to feel like getting away with something or breaking a rule? So there's, you know, there's different ways to, to feel about it. But in terms of being highly sensitive... There are so many mm-hmm. rules, quote unquote, that I've had to just break for myself because no one else yeah. is going to give me permission to meet my own needs the way that I need them met. One of the things that I see has changed and, you know, really I I want to credit, you know, people your age and people, you know, throughout their 20s and probably even their early 30s is there's been a shift in the expectation. Like I grew up in the era where it was like suck it up buttercup right? Like both my husband and I, our parents were pre-baby boomers. So they weren't even baby boomers. And so we had older parents. And so growing up in the 70s, we didn't talk about emotions. And I grew up in a very liberal, very loving family, very neurodiverse family that did not know they were neurodiverse. And I think that's why we were a lot more open with some things. But there were so many things that weren't talked about and weren't Mm -hmm. addressed 
you know, like being told that there was a, a flasher. And if we come across him just to run away, right, things that we just wouldn't handle the same. And what I, I notice, even in my teenage daughter, is this, all of this is changing. I've always been willing to talk about most things. And I know that me talking about things like mental health and, and my experience, and that is making it easier for other people to talk about it. But I do think that there's has been a change in instead of people not saying something, that there's enough people who are like, no, we have to talk about these things. We have to, we have to do better. So as much as change like this is really slow, it has, I, I, I do have a lot of hope because I think people your age are just not going to accept it being any other way. Like I just realized last week that enduring situations that are not good for me was something that was actually fairly normal where mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people who just won't do that anymore. Yeah. And that's good. Yeah. <laughs> there are so many thoughts that just came to mind when you were speaking. One of them that is the most, it's a very clear picture to talk about. I had this realization because my friends that go out to bars and parties, I'm always in pain, like physical pain because it's so loud to my ears. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to go out. You know, it just, it, because I was silent about it, I didn't even realize that it wasn't normal. And then I, Mm -hmm. I realized if everyone was in pain like this, the partying wouldn't be a thing. Like, why would we, why would humans do this? Like they're all having fun. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. my definition of going out to a bar and having a good time is so low. Like the bar is on the floor, different type of bar. It's on Mm -hmm. the floor. It just means I wasn't miserable, like covering my ears. And just to give you an image, the sound of the toilets in our student Mm -hmm. center is so loud to me that it makes me like tear up Mm -hmm. and cry. It's so loud to me. And I realized if this was a thing that was normal, people would talk about it. Mm -hmm. Why is no one talking about crying in the bathroom at the sound of the toilets? Yeah. Oh, you know. I drank a lot in my 20s and to deal with all of those social things. Mm -hmm. That's how I I dealt with it was, um, was by drinking because it made it easier for me to go through these situations. I think for the most part, I was like a responsible, fun partier, but alcoholism does run in my family. Addiction, which we're going to talk about, is very prevalent with ADHD. Oh, yeah. And so there were definitely times where I knew I had to stop drinking mm-hmm. because the issue, it wasn't necessarily the frequency, it was the amount, right? It was more the binge drinking as opposed to yeah. chronic drinking. And we have this weird, I, I don't know, I think people with ADHD, and I don't know how much of it is when you're undiagnosed or mm-hmm. don't have a full treatment plan, this idea that the default is always that there's something wrong with us. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to hide it. Like when you're talking about how you, yeah. if this was the experience when you go out and everybody's experience was like this, right? That it would be handled differently. Mm-hmm. 
we just assume that we have to come. Oh, yeah. We have to endure because everyone else is. Yeah. Like they're having a good time. And I just, I guess Mm -hmm. how I've changed that as I've gotten older is I don't know if it's accepting of myself, but it's really kind of knowing what my wheelhouse is, you know, like what I'm really good at. Because I remember being in my late 20s mm-hmm. and feeling like like to have my shit together meant I needed to know how to do everything. Like I needed to know how to change tires in my car and change oil and manage my, you know, like the engine of a car. Like I thought yeah. that's what being a responsible adult was. Talk about an impossible standard. And then if not meeting it, then you're failing. Oh, yeah. It's like, I think one of the biggest things, even pre-diagnosis, that I recognize within myself is that I'd been placing, and to no fault of my own, because this is what society does, I'd been placing so much weight on the product and not the process. Um, and so it was okay if yeah. the process of getting me to the 4.0 or to whatever killed me, it's okay as long yeah. as I still got the 4.0. So, you know, it feels like you have nothing to show for anything if you don't actually get the prize at the end because you didn't enjoy the journey getting there. So what was it all for? Yeah. Really quick, going back to what you were saying about drinking, as a small kid and as a teenager, I always knew that my personality was sticky in terms of I really have a hard time stopping things that I like doing, um, which we now know is ADHD. That is a better way of describing it as being than being hyperactive, even if you just defined it by that one thing. Um, and so yeah. I knew that I would never touch nicotine because I just knew that my friends would have a very different experience than I did. And so when I came to college, I was recovering from bulimia and I was just fighting for my life during my senior year of high school to be recovered, going to therapy multiple times a week, not seeing any progress because I was basically just trying to muscle through my understimulation while still being a full-time student in a very Mm -hmm. non-ideal environment and then still having access to binge fuel, which could have been any food. I didn't drink at all the first few years of college because I knew that I would trade one monkey on my back for another. And so, you know, to I think there's a camp of people that think that your child is managing fine, even if they have ADHD, they're co- even if they're coping fine, you know, let them tough it out, right? And it's like, your, your kid's going to pick up a cigarette one day or whatever. The friends are going to be able to stop, yeah. but the child isn't. And I just knew yeah. for whatever reason that I was going to be one of those people that would have a severe issue if I tried anything. Yeah. I mean, humans have always looked a way to alter their experience, whether or not that's going shopping, you know, whether or not you, there's so many different ways. And when you have a chemical deficit in your brain, if there's things that are going to alleviate that, whether it's helping you take a break from it, or, you know, feel things differently, that's going to be very attractive. And 
you know, those neural pathways are very, very strong once we start, we create a habit. Yeah. One other thing that came up when you were speaking, I was talking to a friend and we came to the agreement that managing your stimulation level and managing your eating disorder recovery, mm-hmm. you know, however you want to look at it, the the judgment around it shouldn't be anything more than the judgment mm-hmm. and there shouldn't be any judgment around managing something like diabetes. Mm-hmm. It's not their fault. It's just how it is. And you would never tell someone with diabetes to, you know, suck it up or whatever. Mm-hmm. They just have this unconditional permission to take care of themselves how they need to because they're diabetic and they will die if they don't. Mm-hmm. Why is it not the same unconditional permission to take care of yourself when you have a stimulation dopamine dysregulation disorder? Because yeah. I feel like I'm a diabetic without any of the permissions given. Yeah. And the interesting thing is like sometimes people are like, well, it's a hidden disability. Well, when it's a chemical dysregulation disorder and I'm using the word chemical because then it mood disorders fall into that and having, you know, PMDD falls into that and, you know, ADHD, there's so many things that are related. So Jessica McCabe said this in a presentation she gave once about the idea of if somebody's short and they need a stool and someone who's tall doesn't need a stool, that makes sense, like to get like a step stool. But when you have these dysregulation disorders, they're variable. They show up differently depending on a whole bunch of different factors that sometimes we have no control over. Some we can sometimes, but whether or not we need that step stool, some days we do, some days we don't. Yep. And that makes it incredibly difficult for anybody, ourselves and other people to to understand that and then have compassion for it. Yeah. And it's so easy if you don't know what's going on to gaslight yourself into being like, I'm so set, you know, I can do this. I always knew I could do this. And then you get to the second half of your cycle and you're like, oh, I was just doing it. So this must mean that I'm lazy. I've dropped the ball. I don't care enough. Mm -hmm. I'm not working hard enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The bottom line is if this, if this shit was easy, we would do it. we've got a few more topics we want to talk about disordered eating because that's something I've been wanting to get into on the podcast and I look forward to having you back I look forward to being back thank you so much an honor to be talking on the very podcast that has helped me so much in my life thank you and to those listening that feel like you just listen to a firework show of different things going on to that I say take what you need leave what you don't and also That is how ADHDers have conversations. (laughs) Exactly. I hope you've enjoyed today's show and would love to hear your thoughts. To get in touch, you can write me an email at ask at ADHDfriendlylifestyle.com. Connect with me on my website, Instagram, and Facebook at ADHDfriendlylifestyle or Twitter at ADHDFL. Every episode has a website page with show notes, transcripts, next steps, resources, and articles related to the topic. To get these, visit ADHDFriendlyLifestyle.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best way is to subscribe on the podcast player of your choice 
and by taking the time to rate and review it there. The ADHD Rewired Podcast Network has four other podcasts for your listening pleasure. On Hacking Your ADHD, Will Curb gives tips, tools, and insights. Brendan Mahan hosts ADHD Essentials, focusing on parenting and education. MJ is expanding the conversation around ADHD, diversity, and mental health on ADHD Diversified. And Eric Tivers hosts ADHD Rewired with in-depth stories and interviews. If you have never been in a room, either personally or virtually, with a group of ADHDers, you are missing out on a special treasure. I invite you to join all of us on the second Tuesday of every month at 10.30 a.m. Pacific for our live Q&A. To sign up, go to ADHDFriendlyLifestyle.com slash about and scroll down to the green register button. So that's the second Tuesday of every month. You can join us for our live Q&A. Go to my website, ADHDFriendlyLifestyle.com slash about. And when you are at the live Q&A, be sure to let me know you're there because of the podcast. Thanks for listening. See you later.